within the structure of Ephesians, Paul lays out in chapter 1 the manifold blessings that have been given to every individual believer in Christ. In chapter 1, Paul makes plain that everybody who is in Christ has these blessings that he gives us in that extended eulogy. He then prays that we would know these things to be true. And then in chapter 2, he begins to bring those individual believers into the local church. He starts to explain how we have not been saved so as to live our lives in isolation from one another, but rather everyone who is in Christ is now part of the universal church. And he's explaining the riches of God's design when he created that church. Chapter 2 is both an exhortation towards unity and a demonstration of God's wisdom in creating the church. It is both and, and verse 22 is perhaps summative of Paul's thoughts in this chapter. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The dwelling place to which he refers is the church. So every single believer is part of this church. Paul wants us to understand it, to have gratitude for it, and to strive within it toward unity. And you'll remember that's a particular concern of Paul's because in first, first century Ephesus, there would have been both Jews and Gentiles in this one congregation who are having to learn really for the first time what it is to be doing life side by side with one another. And thus, he wants to show them the riches of the church so as to compel them, compel them towards unity. The way in which Paul's argument works in these early verses, before he even mentions Jew and Gentile, before he even gets there, the way in which his argument works is to show us, first and foremost, that we all have a common starting point. We all were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not one of us is an exception in this respect. We were all lifeless, without any hope, any inclination towards God. We all had a common starting point. He then goes on, and as we thought about last Sunday, we all have a common salvation. We have all of us, without exception, been saved by grace. We've all been saved and made alive together with Christ, raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. No one has had a unique salvation experience in that respect. This afternoon we heard wonderful testimonies from seven believers, all of them unique. And yet... In one sense, all of them wonderfully the same. All testifying to God's grace in their lives that brought them to salvation. The third portion of this argument is to show us not only do we all have a common starting point, we all have a common salvation, we all ought to have a common experience a common experience in the Christian life. The race that we're all running should look the same. The same 
in that it should involve no boasting, but walking in good works. You'll see in verses 8 through 10, there are two purpose statements that Paul gives us. One in verse 9, so that, there's the purpose statement, and we'll look at the reasoning that leads up to that, but for now, just focus on that clause, so that no one may boast. So there's the negative. should be true of all of us that we are not boasting. Second purpose statement in the latter half of verse 10, that... Or it could read, so that, it's the same word, so that we should walk in them. Speaking of the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us. So there's the two purpose statements within these few short verses. And through those two statements, Paul shows us what ought to be the common experience for everyone who is in Christ. A common starting point dead in our trespasses and sins, a common salvation saved by grace alone, a common experience not boasting but walking in good works. And this common experience is given to us as a means of striving for unity within the church. Last week I made just a few comments about the importance of unity as I see it throughout all of Scripture. It is truly a precious doctrine in God's eyes. He cares deeply that his people are unified. Before we jump in this evening, I would make a few more comments about the power of unity. Not only is it precious to God, it is tremendously powerful. And what I mean by that is that when a church truly strives for unity, makes it of the utmost priority in the life of the church, that church becomes an immense force for the good of the gospel. That church becomes immensely powerful. In any local community, wherever you are on the planet, when a group of believers is genuinely unified, striving together, putting aside all of their preference issues, all of their sinful tendencies that would bring in expressions of disunity, when that congregation is unified, now watch the Lord work through them. He is pleased to use that body to advance the gospel. And so even this evening, as we thought about outreach and our evangelism efforts, Understand it should be of the utmost priority, as ever, that we are striving for unity. That this church would be a powerful church for the glory of Christ. So, we'll order our thoughts this evening by those two purpose statements. Not boasting, but working. Not boasting, but working. Considering first the prohibition, not boasting, Picking up in verse 8, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved. The for, at the beginning of that verse, is justifying his previous comment. In verse 7, he talks about that in the coming ages, there is a manifestation of his grace that is yet greater than our apprehension of his grace today. 
4, verse 8, the reason why that statement is true is simply because you have been saved by grace. And you'll note, perhaps, Paul is, in a sense, repeating himself here. Look back up to that parenthetical thought that he gave us in verse 5. He exclaimed in the middle of a sentence, by grace you have been saved. He couldn't withhold himself. He bursts out in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. And he is here in verse 8, repeating himself, for by grace you have been saved. Now here he adds two more words on the end, through faith. Paul is simply explaining further the mechanism that God has designed by which we are saved. It is by his grace, not of our own doing, and it is made effective by our faith. We look at Christ, we find him to be a sufficient savior, we take Jesus at his word, we trust him, we trust that he has indeed paid for our sins, and by expressing that faith towards Christ, our salvation is effected. Paul is simply explaining more the way in which God has saved us, by grace, through faith. It's important to note that those last two words have caused an awful lot of problems, strivings, disagreements throughout the history of the church. And the reason being because often many, many have pointed to those two words, the notion of our faith in Christ, as evidence that we are somehow contributing to our salvation. So if you were to go to a Catholic church, by way of example, they would not deny that we have been saved by grace. They would affirm that truth. And they would say it is by grace and we work with God's grace by expressing faith. I was at university with a Catholic, a close, close friend of mine, we would go around for hours on this very issue. If you go back prior to the Reformation, you would find testimonies of Martin Luther himself teaching this very reality. In the university there in Germany, he would speak and say, you are saved by grace, not disagreeing with what it says right there in verse 8. And he would say, and you bring faith. God's grace meets with your faith and the two work together so as to save you. Or perhaps, as you've often heard it, heaven helps those who help themselves. That's how it's often paraphrased. The problem is the very next sentence. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. The word this in that sentence most likely refers to the whole act of salvation. It is an umbrella over the whole salvific work, including the expression of faith. God's working towards you is undoubtedly by grace, 
your faith in Christ is also by grace. You can't even take credit for that. Now, we might struggle with that experientially because as far as you are aware, you decided to express faith in Christ. As far as you experienced it, you looked at Christ, you had some thoughts about him, and you decided to take him at his word. And so experientially, perhaps from your perspective, it does seem that you contributed. But what you need to understand is that God was at work in your heart so as to bring about that impulse of faith. You did not express faith in and of yourself. Again, verse 1 of Ephesians 2 is one that you need to inscribe into the deepest recesses of your heart. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Make sure that you hold on tightly to verse 1 when you come to verse 8 and you read, you have been saved by grace through faith. So that you know that even your expression of faith, your esteeming of Christ to be a Savior is a gift of God. He worked in your heart so as that you would conclude those realities about His Son. So the whole work of salvation from beginning to end, including your faith, is an act of grace from God. And that is why perhaps the most important word of the entire Reformation is the single word, alone. That is what the Catholic Church took such issue with. They would affirm that we're saved by grace, but don't say that we're saved by grace alone. And that is the doctrine that we hold tightly onto, that we prize and champion and sing of and return to each and every Sunday because it is what the Bible teaches. We are saved by grace And grace alone. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not, verse 9, a result of works. And here comes the purpose statement. God so worked in this manner, His plan of salvation for thousands upon thousands has always been the same. It would all be of grace, grace alone, so that. What was his intention in working in that manner? So that no one may boast. That is why God worked the way he did, that you would not boast. Some cultural context around this purpose statement. We tend to think of boasting as only ever negative, improper speech that draws attention to ourselves in an arrogant, audacious manner. I don't know that we would necessarily ever affirm the idea of boasting, at least in our culture today. That's not how Paul's readers would have understood boasting. In the Greco-Roman world, there was understood to be a proper context for boasting. The proper context for boasting was often in a sporting event where the winner, the victor, has demonstrably 
shown himself to be better than his opponent. And thus in that context, is it entirely right for him to boast? Nobody would label him as arrogant, puffed up, pride-filled, if, having worked so as to win the competition, he then boasted. That was the right response in the Greco-Roman world. There was a boasting that was acceptable. And notice what boasting did in that right and proper context was to set at least one person, if not a group of people, apart from the rest. Imagine a sporting event with many involved and one emerges the victor. Well, he is now allowed to boast and in his boasting, he separates himself from the rest. That is the context that these words would have been received in And Paul says, you're not allowed to boast about this. You are not permitted to boast with regards to your salvation. You cannot boast because you didn't work for it. You have come out an almighty victor, a wonderful winner, but not by your own means. It is God's grace that has worked in your life so as to put you where you are today and therefore boasting is prohibited. And again, within the broader context of chapter 2, you understand why this purpose statement is so important. If boasting, even in its proper context, invariably had the result of separating one from the rest, Paul is concerned to show us the glory of God's design in the local church and compel us to strive all the more for unity. And he's saying, do not boast because the effect of your boasting will be to separate yourself from the rest. It will be to to bring in a notion of disunity in the local congregation. And what you need to be doing is striving all the more for unity, therefore, Do not boast. As you read those words, I wonder what is going on in your heart. I know that often I think about the notion of boasting in my salvation, and honestly, it feels so foreign to me. I praise God that I was saved into a context where the doctrines of grace were taught, It was years before I came across a theology that might even hint at the fact that I contributed to my salvation. And so, probably in large measure because of how God introduced me to the Christian faith in that very biblical context, the idea of boasting in my salvation feels so foreign. I praise God for that and I I pray that also it feels like a foreign idea to you. How could I ever come to boast in my salvation? But with that being said, I want to exercise a word of caution. You need to have caution when you read these words and you think, I am so far from boasting in my salvation. Paul has the whole work of salvation in view, as we thought about last week, the initial moment by which you are brought into union 
with Christ. The sanctifying and persevering process all the way to glory. And though it might be true that you look at that initial moment of salvation and it might be foreign to you to even imagine that you could boast about that, probably far less likely is the idea that you could never boast about your perseverance. Perhaps, without even realizing it, you are more prone to draw attention to yourself and your efforts and what you bring to the table as it relates to your ongoing perseverance. As I have thought about it, I do believe that would be the area within our Christian lives from beginning to end where we are most prone to boast. We are most prone to think, I'm really something special here. Look at the way in which I'm serving in the church. I wonder if they can see just how many hours I'm putting in here. I wonder if they're noticing just how hard I'm laboring and just what a blessing I've been to so many people. It would be that area of persevering that perhaps our hearts are prone to seek credit. And one question you might ask yourself to test where your heart is at is how much am I boasting about the cross? You see, when Paul speaks of the gospel, he always does so with a very black and white, in or out kind of theology. There's no middle ground. You're in Christ or you're not when you read Paul. That much is clear. And so surely it stands to reason if you are failing to boast in the cross, Is that not at least to some degree indicative that your heart is prone to be boasting in something else? If you recognize that your words, as you speak about your testimony, not just of initial salvation, but your testimony of going on in the church, if you recognize that there is not that much cross in there, I'm honestly not someone who boasts in the Lord Jesus as the only means by which I am a Christian this day. It is perhaps representative of the fact that your heart is prone to boasting in yourself. Seeking attention, the credit, the affirmation of others, as if somehow now you're responsible for all that the Lord is doing in your life. Paul's exhortation is that we would not boast. How then do we ensure that we stand on solid ground in this respect, that we keep our hearts back from boasting? The answer, as you already know, is to keep in view God and His gift. This is exactly the theology that Paul gave us in chapter 1 of Ephesians. As so many of you have now committed that chapter to memory, don't lose sight of the theology that comes from it. You are blessed beyond all measure. Ephesians chapter 1. Now I'm going to pray for you. What do I pray for you? That you would know God and His gift. That was our sermon. That was our time in that prayer. And you remember the title of the sermon was A Prayer for Life. You cannot get beyond Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1. 
Pray that you would know God and His gift. Strive every day to keep God in sight and the immeasurable riches of His grace as it has come to you in the gift of His Son. Keep looking at the Father and His gift of the Son as the means by which you would not boast. Pursue the discipline of taking in the riches of God and His gift so that you would be someone who is only found boasting in the cross and not in yourself. Well, Paul goes on to give the second purpose statement. What is the common Christian experience? It is not boasting and it is walking. In good works, verse 10, we shouldn't boast, why? For, because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice here in verse 10 just how saturated Paul's language is with the theology of grace. He says, we are his workmanship, we ourselves have been crafted by an all-wise, loving God. We are the product of His labors. We are His workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. The good works are works that God has prepared beforehand. So Paul is setting up this chain of God creating us. We are His workmanship. We can't take credit for who we are this day in Christ. And even the activities that we give ourselves to, God has prepared beforehand for us. So we, can't, we cannot take credit for who we are, nor can we take credit for what we do. The good works that God intends us to give our time and our energy to have been prepared by God beforehand. Thus, it is all of grace. And then he says, so that with all of this having been acknowledged, God creating us and the works that we would do, it is all so that we would walk in them. We would continuously go about the labors of the ministry. We would walk in them. We would habitually go about the tasks that God has given us. We would continuously give ourselves to the labors presented before us that come about within the ministry of any local church. Now what is curious to me and what I have pondered perhaps most this week is the Negative positive that Paul establishes within these few verses. Two purpose statements, one in the negative, one in the positive. The negative is don't boast, the positive is walk in good works. And what I've been pondering and thinking through is just how strange a pairing that really is. Paul did not say that the ordinary Christian experience is to be not boasting in our works, but boasting in Christ. As legitimate as that equation is, we should, with our lips, boast in the grace of the gospel. That's not actually the formula that Paul sets up for the Christian life. 
nor does he say, by way of example, the negative is to not walk, and the positive is to walk. He doesn't say that as legitimate as that relationship is. He brings together two ideas that perhaps we would not ordinarily connect. The Christian life is on the one hand not boasting, and on the other hand, yes, walking. Not boasting, but walking. What's the opposite of not boasting? (laughs) You wouldn't say it's walking. What's the opposite of walking? You wouldn't say, I know, it's not boasting. But some, for some reason, that is how Paul portrays the Christian life to us. Close your mouth and get on with the labors of the ministry. So why that relationship? Why is it intuitive to Paul that we don't boast, but that we walk? I believe the answer is because in God's wisdom, there is a special apprehension of God's grace in our service to one another in the local church. A special apprehension, acknowledgement of God's grace in our acts of service towards one another within the local church. So on the one hand, don't boast. Don't set yourself apart. Don't bring attention to yourself and all that you think is good about yourself. Don't do that. By contrast, Walk in good works. There's the relationship, and this is a fitting, a fitting counterpart to the not boasting. Because, according to God's wisdom, as we go about the good works that He has ordained for us, therein there is a special apprehension, enjoyment of, understanding of God's grace. It is not that we fail to understand God's grace as we speak of it, understand God's grace as you boast of Him. But according to God's wisdom in a special and perhaps higher way, when we give our hands to the work of the ministry, therein there is a special apprehension and enjoyment of God's grace. Perhaps far more than when we simply stand and sing of His grace, which we ought to do when we go about the labors of the ministry, now we start to experience in a new and fresh way just how gracious is God towards us in the gospel. And if you have served in any capacity to any measure in the local church, you will know this to be true. It is a wonderful thing to come together with other brothers and sisters in Christ and to praise God for His grace. But oh, when you serve Him, when you labor in the church, arm in arm with other believers, now there is a tasting of His grace that is altogether different and special and wonderful. When you serve in the work of the ministry, now in a different way, you are experiencing the grace of God and finding it to be altogether satisfying. And notice just how counterintuitive it is. 
we would think in our own reasoning that if we give our time and our effort and our energy to the work of the ministry, all that we would do is further grow in our understanding of our own ability. That is not what happens. As you give yourself to the work of the ministry, you only grow in your appreciation for God's grace towards you. It is wonderfully satisfying in a way that the world cannot fathom. You understand that as the world looks in on the church, they cannot understand why anybody would give of their time and their energy in the way that we ask you to. Why anybody would behave like that and they don't know the grace of God that is experienced through such labors. It is when you serve in the local church that you find the perfect antidote to boasting in yourself. And so, Paul's encouragement to the first century Christians in Ephesus is as pertinent for us today as it was for them. The theology has not changed. God's plan for the church has not changed. One of the most important verses you could ever learn as it relates to service in the church comes in chapter 4 of this letter. The ministry of the Word is given, why? So as to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Do not allow yourself to think that the work of the ministry is done solely by the pastoral staff, by the elders, or even by the deacons. The work of the ministry is your responsibility. It is the ministry of the Word that equips you And as you sit under the preaching and the teaching of the word in this church, so then the expectation is that you would serve. We were able to offer a class for our new members yesterday. And sadly, I couldn't be there for the whole day, but I spoke just very briefly at the beginning. And one of the encouragements that I gave to those coming into membership in just a few weeks was to serve. I said, determine that as you come into membership in this church, you would serve, steadfastly serve as there are needs presented to you. Why? Well, for one reason, I said, we really need you. The ministry is growing here, and there are endless needs. But more than that, I want for you to serve because it is for your good. I want you to serve because it's for your apprehension of God's grace. I want for you so much to understand more and to enjoy more and delight in more the truth of God's gift for you, His grace towards you, and the way At least one of the ways in which you will grow in your understanding of grace is by serving. One of the ways in which you will grow in your understanding of God's grace is by serving. And if you've been coming for any length of time on a Sunday evening, you'll know that every single Sunday I ask for you to serve. We shine a spotlight on one particular ministry in our church and invariably towards the end, I express a need. There is a need. There are countless needs. 
There's no end of them. There, there can never be given the excuse, there was no need for me in this church. You can never say, I just couldn't find a place to serve. Come speak to me. How many hours do you have? You have to serve. Because it's there that Ephesians 2 teaches us that we will find and apprehend and enjoy the grace of the gospel. This is how God has wired you from the second that He saved you. You are a new creation in Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 10. You have been created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? Good works. So as God has made effective the gospel in your life so as to acquit you of your sin and your guilt before Him, you are now wired so as to work. And I've said it before, there are few more miserable people on this earth than lazy Christians. Some of the most sad, miserable people on all of the planet are Christians who do not serve. If you are sat here tonight with issues of contentment, you're just not thrilled to be here. Tell me what your life looks like as it relates to service in the local church. That's where I would begin the conversation. Because God makes plain we will find our joy and our appreciation of His grace in our willingness to serve. So my encouragement to you is that you would serve. Serve in this church. Look for opportunities to bless other believers. It can be in an informal or a formal capacity. There are many needs that I present to you. I praise God if you would respond each and every Sunday and say, I am here. I don't know what I can offer, but please would you use me? Or alternatively, there are informal expressions of service. No one is drawing this to your attention, but you are praying and you are looking around you and you can see needs. There is nothing stopping you seeking to address those needs with your efforts. Whatever you do, please do not allow your feelings to rule over your theology in this area. And here's what I mean by that. You're sat there on a Sunday evening and you hear the pastor say, we have a desperate need right now in the nursery. Or the next week, we are desperately in need of helpers for VBS. Or the next week, we have more needs than you can care to list. Would you consider serving? And you sit there each and every time and you say, you know what? I just didn't feel like it. You know what? That, that, I heard what he said. It just didn't excite me. Do not Allow your feelings to rule over your theology. There is no footnote to this passage only in so much as you're excited by the need. That's not there. We live in an age where we, where we give precedent and priority to our feelings. And honestly, we just need to get on with the work of the ministry. We just need to respond to the needs being presented and to serve. And trust me, you will see just how excited you can become when you take that step of serving. Your feelings will follow your theology when you step up and say, I am here ready to serve. Now, I understand that in some cases you might say, that's not my gift. I do understand that God has wired us each in different ways and there are things you'll be good at and not so good at. But again... Don't always lean on that as an excuse. 
for most of the needs being presented to you, there is not necessarily a gifting required. No gifting to serve at VBS, no gifting to serve in the nursery necessarily. There are many, many jobs that need to be done wherein you don't have to have identified a particular level of gifting to be able to serve. Consider how you are serving in this church. Think about the needs that have been presented, the way in which you could serve yet more. Make your availability known to someone. Come speak to me, speak to another elder or a deacon. Say, I want to serve. Why? Because I want to know more of God's grace. And as we serve together, as we all serve together, we will not only know more of God's grace, but He would mold this church into a unified body that is an immense force for the advancement of the gospel in this community. Pray with me now to close. Father, we praise you for the reality of our salvation tonight, saved all of grace, grace alone, nothing that we have contributed. We refresh our hearts with those truths. And we see that as you created us afresh in Christ Jesus, you have created us for good works. You have even ordained the works ahead of time for us. And our responsibility is to serve, to walk in them, to walk in those acts of service in the local church, to do those good works. Why? Not least because there your grace can be found. May we never boast. May we not set ourselves apart by seeking to boast of what we've accomplished. Rather, would we walk in good works and find there your grace, much joy. Shape us through our acts of service into a unified church and be glorified amongst us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.